0: Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Happy Taboo Tuesday. First, I have a huge favor to ask. If you haven't already, will you take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the pod, please? I have to be super vague, sorry, but someone wants to pick up the pod, potentially. So I need more reviews, please. I hope that I'll have exciting news on that front soon. And if it doesn't work out, well, they're dead to me, and I'll never speak of it again. Kidding. Or am I? I'm Polish. You can't know. Women that history has forgotten. How many amazing women have contributed to society in untold ways? There's no way to know, to snag a line from whining crime. Documentation on women in history is essentially non-existent until the 20th century. Prior to that, only very noteworthy women had recorded birthdays. Like, even girls born into royal families wouldn't have their date of birth recorded. Fucked up, I know. An heir and a spare and all of that shit. So, the reasons for the lack of representation of women in history are simple. Patriarchy. Of course, what else? So, men have taken credit for the accomplishments of women since the dawn of time. Natch. Today, I would like to highlight a few women that should get their time in the sun. And this is by no means a comprehensive list. I started down the path when researching Einstein's <laughs> heard of him, Einstein's alleged theft of his first wife's intellectual property. Um, today, I'm singing the praises of some female movers and shakers that should be more well known. So starting in 1948 in the London Olympics with Alice uh, Coachman, who won the high jump for the United States, she became the first black woman to win an Olympic gold medal. King George VI awarded her the medal and subsequently President Harry S. Truman congratulated her at a White House ceremony. Coachman was also celebrated in a motorcade that traveled from Atlanta to her hometown of Albany, Georgia. As a child, she was forbidden from training at athletic fields with whites, which forced her to get creative. She would use ropes and sticks as high jumps, running barefoot. Despite these barriers, she was able to be the first black woman to win an Olympic medal and the first black person to receive an endorsement deal. Quote, if I had gone to the games and failed, there wouldn't be anyone to follow in my footsteps. It encouraged the rest of the women to work harder and fight harder, Coachman told the New York Times in 1996. She paved the way for African-American athletes like Wilma Rudolph, Evelyn Ashford, Florence Griffith Joyner, Simone Biles, and many more. And then... We have Margaret Hamilton, who I think is still alive, which is crazy because she was born in 1936. So she's probably well known to the people that, you know, care about this kind of stuff. Um, Mankind successfully set foot on the moon in 1969. While history's spotlight remains trained on the pivotal men of NASA, there were several women who played essential roles in the Apollo 11 mission. Margaret Hamilton is one of those women as the leader of the software engineering division of the MIT instrumentation laboratory contracted by NASA for the Apollo program. Hamilton helmed the development of spacecraft's guidance and navigation system. So modern day speak, um, she fucking wrote like the, like the code, um, for our GPS. Okay. Um, to the moon. God, it's amazing to think of that. Like, no ugh, no computers, just fucking writing on paper. Okay, so her team developed the framework for software engineering, and she worked tirelessly in testing um, Apollo software. Thanks to Hamilton's rigorous testing of the software, Neil Armstrong and Balls Aldrin successfully landed on the moon despite a software override. In 2003, NASA honored Hamilton with a special award recognizing the value of her software innovations, In 2016, President Obama awarded Hamilton a Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award in the United States. Hamilton was, of course, preceded by women like Katherine Johnson and other great women um, that have contributed to NASA, you know, since its inception. I'm not going to go on and read more of what I wrote there. But anyway, yeah, you probably know about her. She's great. Look her up. So there's a great picture, I think, of her standing next to um, the code that she wrote. And it's like a stack of paper that has to be like four feet tall. It's crazy. Anyway, throwing it back in the way, way back machine, as the last po- uh, podcast on the left guys say, I think. Backed in uh, 1624-ish. Wu Zitan... She was the only female emperor in Chinese history. She used every ounce of her political skills and pulled some Machiavellian maneuvers to gain and maintain her power. Oh, that's funny because she would be before Machiavelli. Anyway. In dynastic China, Confucius deemed women unfit to rule <sighs> fucking patriarchy. Nevertheless, Wu persisted. ok? She actually rose through the ranks in Chinese society. Um but she persisted. Her intellect and beauty attracted Emperor Tai Sung, who recruited her to his court as his concubine. After the Emperor's death, his son Kao Tsung succeeded him. Cao Tsung had been having an affair with Wu even before the death of his father. She became his second wife, a step up from concubine. Concubine. It's not that hard to say. After his accession. Okay. So she gave birth to a daughter soon after they married, um, who died young. Wu blamed the first wife, Empress Wang, although some people believe that Wu herself killed her daughter. That too, a couple of places. Emperor Kao Tsung later died from a stroke, and Empress Wu began administrative duties in the court, eliminating and spying on those who posed an obstacle to her and putting her youngest son into power. When her son stepped down in 1690, Wu was crowned Emperor of China. As Emperor, Wu truly did affect change in China. She gave government positions to qualified scholars, reduced the army's size lowered unfair taxes on peasants, and increased agricultural production. So jumping forward in time about a millennia, you know. uh, Tonight, wait, 1761, Sybil Ludington. There seems to be a chorus of praise for American revolutionary Paul Revere, but we haven't heard much of the female revolutionary who rode even farther through the night in the name of American freedom. On April fifth, 1761, Sybil Ludington was born to Abigail and Colonel Henry Luddington, a veteran of the French and Indian War. When Sybil's father found out that British troops were attacking Danbury, Connecticut, 25 miles from the family's New York State home, 16-year-old Sybil took it upon herself to warn the countryside of the coming British invasion. By horse and in the pouring rain, she traveled 40 miles to announce that the British were coming. Her ride proved successful because when she arrived back from the trip, hundreds of troops were assembled in front of her home. After her successful ride, Ludington continued to serve as a mes- messenger in the Revolutionary War. Although President George Washington thanked her for her service, she faded into obscurity soon thereafter. Fucking patriarchy. It's worth noting that not every historian is convinced of this story of Sybil Ludington. Yeah, yeah. Paula D. Hunt uh, published a paper in the New England Quarterly in which she scrutinizes the account, attempting to separate fact from fiction. However, other organizations and outlets from the National Women's History Museum to the New England Historical Society and American historian Carol Birkin in her book, Revolutionary Mothers, stands by the midnight ride. If you haven't read, this is now separate, but kind of related in, in my brain. If you haven't read Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, Do It, women have held a desire to serve for hundreds of years. And the military is like, um, no, you vagina, gross. Um, I don't want to say anything else about the book. Read it. Okay, so then we're going to hop over to Huda Arari. And I know I'm saying that wrong, so I'm going to say Huda. Huda. So Huda's upbringing led her to challenge the notion that women need protecting. In 1908, she founded Egypt's first female-run philanthropic society, which offered services for impoverished women and children, As more education opportunities became available for Egyptian women, Huda planned lectures to educate women and eventually organized the largest women's anti-British protest. Once Egypt gained independence from Britain in 1922, it was expected that women would go back to the life in the harem, but not under Huda's law. Watch. Not Huda's law. That'd be cool. Just laying down a law. Anyway. She decided to make the decision um, that would prove levo- revolutionary for Egyptian women. After stepping off that train in Cairo, Huda removed her veil in public. After Huda's rebellious act, few Egyptian women continued to wear the veil. She continues to have a lasting influence on women not only in the Middle East, but around the world. Okay, so this one's kind of a cheat because Henrietta Lacks is relatively well known. Um, She was born in 1920. She died very young in 1951. She is um, credited to having essentially, without consent, um, donated, in quotes, um, uh, immortal cells Um, anyway, I'm going to go to my notes. The first immortal cell of its kind was created in 1951 at John Hopkins Hospital. It's donor remaining unknown for years, but we now know that those cells belong to Henrietta Lacks. They've gone into space. They, it's amazing. There's the book, um, there's the podcast by Radiolab that I would highly recommend if you want a quick overview, From Southern Virginia, Henrietta was a black tobacco farmer who was diagnosed with cervical cancer at 30. Without her knowing, her tumor was sampled and sent to scientists at Johns Hopkins. It was the 50s. There was a lot of really bad shit happening um, back then in the medical field. Oh, my God. That's an episode in and of itself. Um, Much to the scientists' surprise, her cells never died. Her cancer cells. Henrietta's immortal cells were integral in developing the polio vaccine and reuse for cloning, gene mapping, and in vitro fertilization. And her cells are all around the world and in space. Um, There's the book, like I said, and there's also the episode of Radiolab, so I won't cover anything else because they'll give you the fabulous story arc that I won't. For decades, the donor of these cells, which were codenamed... Hila H-E-L-A, remained anonymous. In the 1970s, Henrietta's name was revealed in The Origins of Hela. A code for the first two letters in Henrietta and Lax became clear. When Henrietta Lax may no longer be with us, her contribution to science is long-lasting. A book about her invaluable and forced contributions was also made into a film starring Oprah. Heard of her? Like I said, Radio Lab, Great episode. Check it out. Okay, now thrown away back again. It can be said that the existence of Vietnam today is due almost wholly to the efforts of the Tsung sisters. I've Trung sisters. sisters. I have heard it pronounced both ways on the internet. Prior to forty A.D., uh, A.D. and B.C., all the ed- I just get confused. So forty years after the date that we decided we're gonna start our calendar, the Chinese conquer um conquered Vietnam, leaving the country under the brutal rule of the Chinese governor To Din. The daughters of a powerful Vietnamese lord Trung Trac and Trung Ni, were determined to change the state of affairs in Vietnam. So the elder sister decided to mobilize Vietnamese lords to rebel against Chinese rule. Cool. It is said that, excuse me, To further their cause, the sisters killed a people-eating tiger and used its skin to write a declaration against the Chinese, which I had to include that because it's so fucking random. Among the 80,000 people they rallied for their uprising, the sisters chose 36 women to be generals who successfully drove the Chinese out in 40 AD. Track became queen, abolishing tribute taxes and struggling to revert back to a simpler government. After their troops suffered terrible defeat in 43 A.D., legend has it that the sisters took what the Vietnamese considered to be an honorable way to, way out suicide. The sisters' bravery and sacrifices made for Vietnam um, to continue to be honored today through stories, poems, posters, uh, monuments, and more. Although the sisters are well-known in Vietnam, their contributions and uh, are unnoticed elsewhere, especially within Western countries, because we only care about Western history. Dorothy Lawrence. 1896, she was born and passed away in 1964. Dorothy Lawrence was a reporter in England who disguised herself as a man to fight in World War I, making her the first confirmed female to fight in the English Army. In 1915, with her chest flattened by a corset, her hair completely cut off, and her complexion darkened, Lawrence decided to just leave her job as a journalist and head to the front lines. Fucking brave. Lawrence didn't spare any of the details of her disguise. She borrowed a khaki military uniform from two British soldiers, asked the soldiers to teach her how to walk more androgynously, and forged travel permits for war-torn France. God, she really did her background. Good job. After serving in the military for a brief 10 days, Lawrence fell ill and, because of worsening symptoms, decided to reveal her identity to her commanding sergeant. She was put under military arrest. Upon her return to England, she was interrogated as a spy and deemed a prisoner of war. She also swore an oath not to write about her experience as a soldier in disguise, in 1919, against England's wishes, Lawrence published Sapper Dorothy Lawrence, the only English woman soldier, which was a commercial flop despite critical interest and left her with no income. In a state of despair, Lawrence told a doctor um, that her church guardian raped her as a child. She was declared insane and committed to an asylum, where she remained until her death in 1964. So, if we unpack that history, was a bag of dicks to her, as the queens say, and then she was deemed insane and lived the rest of her life in an insane asylum because she just couldn't be who she wanted to be because she had a vagina. Cuckoo, 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 Edmonia Lewis, born in 1843, died 1907. So little is known about the early life, of course, because she was a woman, but she was a sculptor. She was reportedly born on July 14th, 1843, although that is up for debate as well, of course. Um, Lewis is considered the first woman sculptor of African-American and Native American heritage. She began her education in 1859 um, in Ohio, where she became quite artistic, particularly in drawing. During her undergraduate years, she changed her name to Mary Edomina, which she had been using anyway to sign her sculptures, um, while there, Lewis was wrongly accused of theft, theft and attempted murder. Though she was eventually acquitted, she was prohibited from graduating. That would not hold a man back today. When she moved to Boston, she was mentored by sculptor Edward Brackett and began to develop her own artistic style. Her dual ancestry proved to be a source of much inspiration for her, and it's shown in her um early work. Anyway, we're going to hop back in the way, way back machine again and go to 370. Hypatia of Alexandria. So we hear about the lives and the contributions of all of the classical Greek and Roman philosophers, luminaries, brilliant minds like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. Where the fuck are the women? They obviously were procreating to produce these amazing men. But history is dicks, as the queens say. So, Hapatia of Alexandria is one of the few exceptions to the history is a bag dicks rule. She was an influ- influential female scholar. Um, let's just show her some love. Growing up, she um, w- had a scholar for a father, Theon, which taught her mathematics, astronomy, and philosophy in hopes of giving her the same opportunities available to men. Hell, yes. Theon, you are ahead of your time well you're ahead of 2019 soon enough hypatia had student hypatia that's such a beautiful name had students of her own whom she taught mathematics and philosophy She was an acclaimed teacher, with many of her students returning for years to discuss um, all kinds of different matters. At the time Alexandria was transforming into a Christian city, the pagan Hypatia was viewed by Christians as an obstacle to her students' proper religiosity. Extremely dedicated to her studies, Hypatia never married and remained celibate through her life. In March of 415 CE, Hypatia was on her way home when she was attacked by a mob of Christian monks, stripped naked, dragged through the city, and beaten to death. After her death, many scholars and artists left Alexandria, viewing Hypatia's murder and the Christianization of Alexandria as the death of the intellectualism of the arts. On to our next woman that needs some recognition. Grace Hopper was the first woman to earn a Ph.D. in mathematics from Yale University. It was in 1934, but she accomplished much more, naturally. After receiving her master's degree, she taught as an associate professor at Vassar, and then she enlisted in the Navy during World War II, because she is a badass. She was an experienced mathematician. She was assigned to the Bureau of Ordnance Computation and contracted to program a Mark I computer. That's amazing. As a researcher at Harvard, she then worked on the Mark II and III computers. Okay, who else is thinking of Tony Stark when they, when Mark I, Mark II, Mark III? Okay. I'm not the only one. Anyway, so working on the one, two, and three computers, helping popularize popularize the term computer bug. After her tenure with the Navy, Hopper worked for the eckhart mauchly Computer Corporation. Sorry if I said that right or wrong. Sorry if I said that right more accurate and then as a programmer for uh remington rant hopper and her team are responsible for creating the first compiler for computer languages a precursor for the common business oriented oriented language which is now widely used my tech husband would understand that but he won't listen to this but he would understand that i don't know what that means Hopper changed the face of programming. Her legacy continues to inspire young people through efforts like the Grace Hopper Celebration of Women in Computing Conference, which encourages women to become programmers, and the Grace Murray Hopper Award through the Association for Computing Machinery. You gotta include something for the hometowners. Zelda Fitzgerald, 1900-1948. to As the cliche goes behind, many male authors are accomplished wives and women who are often overlooked by history. Zelda Fitzgerald is one of these women. Quote, the most enormous influence on me in the four and a half years since I met her, the great Gatsby author F. Scott Fitzgerald told Edmund Wilson, has been the complete, fine, and full-hearted selfishness and chill-mindedness of Zelda. While Zelda Fitzgerald is often regarded as a mere spectator to her husband's literary success, she was an inspiration for nearly all of his heroines. And the literature she wrote on her own was just as accomplished as her husband's. We wouldn't know that though. Zelda's remarks and writings were repackaged into F. Scott Fitzgerald's books, and she knew it too. In a review of her husband's novel, The Beautiful and the Damned, 1922, she wrote, Plagiarism begins at home. I would have fucking liked her. F. Scott would look through his wife's letter and diaries for inspiration, tidbits of which Zelda recognized in his books. One of the most well-known lines from Gatsby is what Zelda said to him, word for word, when she learned the sex of her child. I hope it's beautiful and a fool. A beautiful little fool Mm hmm shocking okay rose marie mccoy at 19 mccoy moved from arkansas to new york city to pursue her dream of being a singer she was indeed a gifted vocalist but in the late 40s she decided to pursue her true calling songwriting her song trying to get you was performed by elvis presley on his debut album Which, of course, soared to the charts. As an African-American woman living in the 1960s, she accomplished a remarkable feat. She got a private office in the Brill Building, um, the songwriting mecca of its time. Her lyrics continued to resonate with all kinds of people, including James Brown, Nat King Cole, um, etc., she uh, sang with Tina Turner, she earned a Grammy nomination, non- um, she went on to write for Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor, and composed several commercial jingles per- performed by Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles. She was approached by prominent record companies who wanted to sign her, but refused all their offers. In total, she wrote approximately 850 songs, a shocking number for someone that you've never heard of really um she's finally getting the attention that she deserves well this was in 2009 that i read this so she she got some attention in 2009 and now um she's probably back to the npr news archives I personally think we're going to start hearing about Shirley Chisholm soon, as we have so many women entering the primary, Democratic primary for 2020, but that's just speculation on my part, like this whole podcast. So before Hillary Clinton, there was Shirley Chisholm. Um, she was the first Black woman to run for president with a major political party, and she is undoubtedly groundbreaking. So why don't we know of her? Why isn't she in the history books? I have a theory, and it involves racism. In January of 1972, Chisholm announced her presidential candidacy. While her campaign had a short run, it remained significant for people that remember. Her presidential campaign wasn't Chisholm's only first. She also was the first African-American congresswoman. Chisholm was born in Brooklyn, New York. She's the, the OG AOC. Hmm. Chisholm was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1924. While working in child care, she became interested in politics. She served on the New York Assembly and then became the first African-American congresswoman in 1968. During her tenure in Congress, she shattered shattered many a glass ceiling. She fought for the underprivileged, the minorities, and she pushed forward um, legislation for domestic worker benefits. She advocated to improve access to education, and she fought for immigrant rights. She then decided to break the biggest of boundaries by running for president, quote, I ran because most people thought the country was not ready for a black candidate, not ready for a woman candidate. Someday, it was time in 1972 to make that someday come. She told an interviewer at the time, her slogan, unbought and unbossed, remains legendary to this day. Democrats, listen, she was like getting shit done. Listen to her. Okay, so let's move on to Ellen Richard. Her full name, Ellen Henrietta Swallow Richards. I'm going to call her Ellen. She was born in 1842. She was an industrial safety engineer, also an environmental chemist, and university faculty member in the United States in the 19th century. Her pioneering work in sanitary engineering and experimental research in domestic science laid a foundation for the new science of home economics. So basically... No, I'm not going to deviate. She was the founder of the home economics movement, um, characterized by the application of science to the home, and the first to apply chemistry to uh, the study of nutrition. So basically she wanted to go to school and be like, hey, I'm a chemist, I'm a scientist. And the guys were like, oh, no, 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 honey, you can't do that. So she's like, fine, fuck you guys. I will find a way to use this information to my benefit and apply it to the home um, and make sure that, you know, like food and water are just like safe to eat and drink. Cool, 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 cool. Okay, So she graduated from Westward Academy, um, the second oldest secondary school in Massachusetts. I don't know why I kept that in my notes. Who fucking cares, Massachusetts? Um, In 1862. She was the first woman admitted to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. She graduated in 1873 and later became the first female instructor. Also, she did a ton of shit pro bono just because she wanted fucking women to learn. It was amazing. Mrs. Richards was the first woman in America accepted to any school of science and technology and the first. American woman to obtain a degree in chemistry, which she earned from Vassar College in 1970. Uh, she was a pragmatic feminist as well as a founding eco feminist who believed that women's work within the home was a vital aspect of the economy. So After being like, no bigs, just accepted into MIT, um, she literally spent years teaching girls chemistry. She did this of her own volition. She didn't get paid. It wasn't an official class. She saw that the education of women just wasn't being fucking taken seriously like it was, you know, for men. So she took the bull by the horns, as they say, and she just taught women. I love this woman. If If you can't tell that that from my exuding passion for her. I love this woman. Women helping other women for the progression of women everywhere. It's stories like this that can really get to my bleeding heart. Okay, Einstein. If your childhood was anything like mine, you probably heard that at some point. Einstein, a wacky fucking genius, right? Or... Did he steal the intellectual property of his first wife and pass it off as his own? Considering women in that era weren't welcome into the sciences, as we just discussed. Oh, And I'm just so glad that that's finally changed, right? Anyway, it was not unheard of for men to steal the accomplishments of women. Just another reason I know that I wouldn't have survived in such an oppressive era. It's 2019 and I still rage. Anyway, back to the theory that Einstein stole his Nobel Prize winning theory from a lady. In the 1980s, Evan Walker Harris published a theory that Einstein's first wife, Melvia, co-wrote his 1905 theory on of special relativity. Um, the idea has caused quite a stir. It was almost immediately shut down by historians and uh, physicists alike, all of whom were men, it should be noted. The theory popped up after Soviet physicist Abraham Ferrock. Joff described a letter correspondence he had had with Einstein. Joff received preprints of Einstein's papers, and Joff, instead of listing Einstein as the sole author, wrote the author as Einstein Merity. Merity being Melvia's uh, last name, her maiden name, rather. The misunderstanding prompted Russian science writer Danil um, Semvovich Danin to suggest that Milva was more than just Einstein's wife, but a collaborator of his work. Walker believes um, Milvia not only collaborated on the famous theory, but suggested that Einstein may have actually stolen his wife's theories altogether. A translated letter between Einstein and his first wife reveals that even Einstein didn't see his theory as just referring to his theory of relative motion. He referred to it as our on many occasions, um, including bringing our work on relative motion to a successful conclusion. So, when Melvia and Einstein divorced in 1919. The settlement gave the uh, Nobel Prize money to and royalties to Melvia. A weird agreement to make of Melvia had no contribution to Einstein's theory, right? Maybe, okay? Allegedly. But without sufficient evidence, there is no real way to know if Melvia had any contribution to Einstein's theories. All we can say now and speculate and say is allegedly he totally fucking stole her work and wrote her out of history. Fuck you, Einstein. How's that for a hot take? So my daughter has this book on um, Ruby Bridges. Rather, I got the book for my daughter, who isn't even four yet. Um, But as I was reading it to her, I was like, oh, my God, I'm ashamed to, like, admit that I don't know exactly this story. Like, I know a blip of it, but not enough. So here's a little blip. You may have heard of Ruby Bridges, who was one of six black children in New Orleans to pass the test that determined whether they could go to an all-white school. Not even going to attempt to deconstruct that sentence and why it's so wrong. From the moment Bridges stepped into her new school, it was an uphill battle, as all of the teachers refused to teach while a black child was enrolled. That's right. The teachers refused to teach while a black child was enrolled. Only one person agreed to teach young Bridges, and that was Barbara Henry from Boston, Massachusetts. For over an entire year, Henry taught her alone, as if she were teaching a whole class. I think that's beautiful and amazing. Um. Oh, God, this story. I don't want to cry. Rachel Beckwith. Rachel Beckwith was an amazing nine-year-old girl who wanted to change the world and solve problems. because She was nine. She saw at church one day... Um, I heard a man like give a talk about how kids her age in Africa didn't have clean water to drink, so she immediately decided to help. So she and her mom raised over two hundred dollars on like a GoFundMe page or something. I can't remember. Um, but the goal fell short. Um, by a hundred bucks. The original goal was three hundred. They got two hundred. Tragically, her story ended a month la- later. Um, after she was involved in a fatal um car accident. When the news spread about Rachel's story and her birthday wish, people all around the world began to donate to her page. A month later, 30,000 people had given over $1.2 million, and as a result, 60,000 people in over 100 villages were able to drink clean water because of Rachel's wish. This was on the news a few years ago, and I still cry thinking about her. I didn't while I'm recording this. Fucking hooray. So we'll round out this list of amazing women with Janine uh, Calment, Simply put, Calment lived the longest documented life in human history. She passed away in 1997 at the age of 122 years and 164 days old. Bananas. She learned to fence when she was 85. She was still riding a bike at 100. At 113, she was known as the last living person to have personally met Vincent Van Gogh. She lived alone until 110 and was able to walk upright until almost 115. Jeez, that is crazy. So, as I've mentioned many times, my queens over at Queen's Podcast have this saying, which is, history is a bag of dicks. Men have been claiming the accomplishments of women since the dawn of time, as I've said. We're pregnant. Fuck you. No, you're not. Your wife is pregnant and you're going to help raise your child together. That's great. You have um, ingredients for the baby batter, but she's pregnant. She's making bones and will expel a human from her body. Just want to make that little rant known. We are not pregnant. Okay. Every system in America is that of a patriarchal one. Set up by men for white men. Those few that have elbowed their way to the top, well, they're often footnotes in the story of a more well known man, as we've discovered. But Marie Curie, right? And I hate how people say Marie Curie. It's Mary Curie if you're from America. Mary Curie. Um, so, Even when you look at the story of um, Marie Curie, depending on how it's told, there's some blatant fucking sexism, like silly lady handling all that radioactive shit and be dying all over the place. Her accomplishments are overshadowed by her death. It's a way to diminish her as a scientist. This is my opinion, of course, and I'm sure there will be plenty of people to tell me to stop hating white men. And to you, I say this. I love men. I'm married to one. I'm raising a boy that I hope to shape into a great man. The patriarchal systems that have been in place since the birth of our nation continue to oppress those that don't fit in the once-majority box of white, heterosexual male. Even as the white male becomes a minority, he's still considered the majority. And why? Because all institutions and systems tell him he's the majority. That's the fucking patriarchy I want to burn to the ground. And this podcast is part of that quest. Also, I would just like to address the trolls coming out of the woodwork. I'm not attacking anyone. I can't make any person feel a certain way. Emotions are internal reactions to information we take in. I'm the messenger, but you as the listener are responsible for your reactions, emotions, and how you respond to me. Before writing me and telling me how wrong I am, there's nothing wrong with masculinity or being a guy's guy. Check your privilege, okay? You're so far up Maslow's pyramid that you're triggered by how your masculinity is affecting society. That's a pretty cush spot to find oneself in. So please, self-reflect, analyze why you're feeling the way that you are. What did I say to make you feel a certain way? Don't tell me. Have a conversation with yourself. Be honest why do you feel defensive or that you need to get on the offensive? I'm producing a free podcast that no one, not even my husband, is under any obligation to listen to. So if you want thought provoking subject matter, welcome. If you want to argue with me about my perspective of the world, well, save us both the time. And again, you're not obligated to listen to this. Check out Ben Shapiro. I kid, I don't even know who that dude is. I just know based on context that we're like polar opposites. Anyway, this has been a long episode of Taboo and Murder. I hope that these brief bios of some amazing women in history encourage you to seek out more information on their stories. For sources to leave episode ideas um, or constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter at smtaboo. And I'm always looking for topic suggestions. And I have to say, I would appreciate if you could take 30 seconds to rate and review the podcast. And if you would share with a friend or five, I would be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. And don't sue me.